Two and a half years ago, the world stopped as we all watched George Floyd die before our eyes. After years of hearing about the racial injustice experienced by people of color, the world seemed ready to finally listen. Then, a year later, 2.15. 215 unmarked graves were found at the site of a former Kamloops Indian residential school. The first of what would amount to over 1,500 unmarked graves found at former residential schools across the country. More pain uncovered, buried by the dark past of this country. For everyone joining us today, I want to extend my heartfelt thanks. As you are bearing witness, and in doing so, you are ensuring that Indian residential school survivors are finally being heard. Organizations started to confront the grim reality of racial discrimination, a spotlight shone on the lack of people of color in places of power. I was forced to resign after 19 years because working at the Department of Justice, serving Canadians, I never once received a promotion. Business can dismantle racism. Hard conversations were encouraged, books were read, and diversity experts hired. Many called it a racial awakening. I see it as uh, a year of uh, racial dilemma for a lot of folks, right? But according to Statistics Canada, the number of reported hate crimes went up. Anti-black hate crimes went up 92% in 2020. Hate crimes against Indigenous people increased 152%. But the most startling were crimes against East and Southeast Asian Canadians, which saw a 301% rise, making headlines around the world. But studies show diversity and representation at the decision-making level of organizations and churches has not changed. Pew Research Center finding that black Christians feel safer worshiping with those who look like them. On today's context, where are we now? Two and a half years after the racial awakening, has the world finally woken up? Welcome to Context, I'm Maggie John. The conversation around diversity, equity and inclusion has dominated many spaces in the past two and a half years with companies making public statements to be more inclusive, stating they are committed to being safe spaces for all. But have the words resulted in action? As we saw off the top of the show, the Canadian context in this discussion includes the treatment of Asian and black Canadians, as well as indigenous groups. But has anything changed? Joining me today are Kimberly John Morgan, DEI content writer and equity educator, Stephanie Joyce Styers, president and CEO of Marketplace Solutions, and Anne Marie Pham, CEO of the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion. Welcome to you all. Kimberly, I'm going to start with you. Let's let's think about this. You know, we we say the conversation around diversity and equity inclusion uh, is moving, but you say in, it has been kind of stuck on appeasing certain voices. What do you mean by that? I mean that the conversation is stuck on appeasing the voices of those who are learning about racism, not those who experience it, you know, and so trying to catch people up and, and teach those who don't know about racism or who have the privilege of not 
experiencing it on a regular basis, that's where the conversations are stuck and, and not looking at the impact on the people who are actually harmed on a regular basis. And when we have these conversations, we're kind of stuck in that rhetoric of trying to keep the conversation soft and safe and not really allowed the space to, to have these deeper, more meaningful conversations where we can talk about the true impact about those who are afflicted. And sometimes those people are in leadership and that's what kind of gets the conversation stuck in that area. Stephanie, as an Indigenous woman, a lot has happened in the past two and a half years for First Nations as well. Uh, as we saw, unmarked graves were uncovered and apologies were made. Where does the conversation need to go now? I think with apologies, we have to be mindful that there needs to be action behind that apology. We can't just sit and wait we can't say, oh, we got to report on this or we have to do a report on that. We have all the reports we need. Now's the time for action. What are we going to do to change this narrative? What are we going to do to educate the broader society about Indigenous issues? Again, with the uncovering of the young people at the residential school, the young bodies of young people who died at the hand of people in power, people who were supposed to protect our children actually had a hand in their murder, in genocidal tactics that tried to get rid of Indigenous people. For what? For land and resources, for money. Mm. And it seems like it's people of color that continue to push that conversation along, Anne-Marie. You know, we've seen an increase in hate crimes, as, as we saw and discussed off the top of the show, but also a significant increase in Asian hate. This conversation has seemingly stopped. How do we keep it going and how does it evolve? Yeah, it's such a good point. I think that the challenge that we face in Canada is that anti-Asian racism is not a big of an issue in the eyes of many Canadians as other types of racism. And many members of the Asian communities as well feel unsafe talking about it. Part of it is their cultural upbringing, which is, you know, collectivist society, don't rock the boat, uh, you know, be uh, polite and respectful. But part of it is also just a general lack of awareness and understanding from non-Asian people to talk about this. And so they feel stuck, you know, between a rock and a hard place. Um, I think that uh, part of the conversation is unpacking the stereotypes that Canadians have about Asian people, you know, that they work hard, that they are successful, that they don't complain. And as a result, they are the model minority. It's one of the myths that we have in Canada about Asian people. And so this model minority stereotype is used as a scapegoat to compare Asian people against non-Asian people and say, look, Asian people are doing so well, why can't you be as good as they are? But of course, this argument is flawed because Asian communities are not a monolith and there are successful people, but there are also a lot of people who are experiencing you know, discrimination in the workplace and lack of opportunities for growth as well as anti-Asian racism. Kimberly, are people tired of listening? It really depends on who you're asking, you know? So if you're asking people who are impacted by racism and who, you know, felt the, the, the murder of George Floyd personally, um, we're, we're tired of listening to 
the rhetoric. We're tired of listening to the empty promises. We're tired of listening to the calls for change that never go answered. So in that way, yeah, I would say that I can, you know, black people are tired because we've been hearing this over and over again. And how many more people is it going to take before the rest of the world is listening? You know, um, for those who, who, you know, who may be getting tired, um, I would say you don't have the, the, that's privilege. That's the privilege of getting tired. You have the privilege to look away. You have the privilege to put it down and not be impacted on a daily basis. And what I would want those individuals to know is that while you're getting tired, people are continuing to be harmed, you know? So while we're waiting for our allies to get their second wind, people are, are literally dying in the streets, you know, and our children are being hurt in schools. And, you know, we can go through all the systems that we're, we're impacted in, we're all swimming in it. And so while people are getting tired, people are, are also dying. Yeah. And we're struggling, we're still having these conversations every single day. We continue to have these conversations. Stephanie, can you force, can we force people to care? You know, in some cases it feels like we wear an orange shirt and then we move on each year. Is, does it feel like we're forcing people to care about this? I think that when we look at the, the bigger picture, we see that people have a choice to care. You can care about what's going on or you can turn a blind eye. But what we know and what we see is that there are so many things happening with Indigenous people, injustices, um, the healthcare system is not functioning properly for us. The policing is not functioning properly for us. Safety for women and children is not functioning properly for us. So when you look at it, you look at who created these systems and why are they not working? You know why? Because like critical race theory says, they were created by people who are considered white privileged. So if these systems are continually to be used in society today, we're gonna always have injustice and no one is gonna be called to care because we're just leaving things as they are. There needs to be a reform that happens here and it needs to start with every single person. It, it's not a brain issue. It's not a mind issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Do you care enough about your fe fellow brother or sister to stand up for what's right, mm. to seek justice in all aspects of our lives and in daily societal ways that we get along and interact? Because as a Christian, if we are a Christian, we're called to do that. We're called to love our brothers and sisters as ourselves. Mm. We're called to do that no matter what. So it should start with Christians. If we really are Christians, we, it should start with us. And we should stand up for injustice. We and should if be emulating we that for everybody else, for sure. It's, a, it's an expect, exactly. expectation of all Canadians, for sure. Anne-Marie, there has also been a vilifying of the desire to have conversations about inclusion, essentially mocking the conversations as woke. How do we respond to that sentiment? Yeah, you know, being woke um, is really rooted in a meaningful beginning, right? It came out of um, the police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. And really it was 
you know, it had a specific context at the time to keep watch for police brutality and unjust police tactics. And now the word has been expanded and used and abused to also, uh, you know, challenge people with saying, you know, you are now an extremist and it's political correctness gone, already gone wrong. And it's become sarcastic as a term. But I think that we have to go back and say, you know, let's avoid talking about terms that actually are weapons to, you know, polarize people and divide people, right? The meaning of being woke is a good meaning, it's good intent, but it's being used the wrong way. So what I would encourage people to do is instead stop using terms that maybe polarize and attack people. Instead, let's get to the root of the issues, have respectful conversations, and really, as Stephanie said, you know, build the empathy from the heart, you know, trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and see what collectively as a society, as humans, we can do to support each other, to be allies for each other, uh, so that our society is not just better for some people, but for all people. Kimberly, what have you seen change in your work? Are you seeing some companies do this well, do this conversation well, and if so, how? In a word, no. Um, I haven't seen significant change. I feel like companies are stuck in countless iterations of unconscious bias training. And we just keep repackaging it and renaming it and, and making it fancier. But I haven't seen any change in terms of like what happens after the unconscious bias is made conscious. You know, the only change I've really seen significantly is that people of color, people who face discrimination in all its forms now have more language to be able to talk about the things that they're experiencing. We have more, you know, awareness days, which is, is great, but the conversation needs to go further than that. So I, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom. I'm just a realist in terms of living in the real world. And there's a lot to be done by the dominant culture to make the changes that we need to see happen. Well said, we're gonna have to end there. I wish this conversation could go so much longer. So many other questions to ask uh, the three of you. Again, Kimberly John Morgan, Stephanie Joyce Styers, and Anne-Marie Pham, thank you so much for your time today, ladies. Reverend Dr. Rhonda Britton was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida during the civil rights era. She remembers her church family attending the 1963 March on Washington. Today, she works closely with churches in the Halifax region, encouraging the conversation around inclusion to stay at the forefront. Welcome, Dr. Britton, to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Where do you think the church is when it comes to the conversation around inclusion and race? I think we are making some progress. Um, it has not been a conversation at the forefront uh, here in Nova Scotia for a very long time, but with the murder of George Floyd that woke up a lot of um, people uh, to and brought them to consciousness about this ongoing uh, racial tension that we have in North America, the church has started to be a little bit more uh, of a voice at the forefront. Um, our church, you know, our family here in Atlantic Canada, the Canadian Baptist, um, we have started to have conversations about it and uh, held, held one of the first 
church leader forums uh, for our church leaders in this region uh, shortly after the killing. I find that fascinating, Dr. Britton. I think about the history of Nova Scotia. I think about the black loyalists. I think about how rich black history is in that area of our country. And yet you're saying it took the death of an American black man to encourage that conversation in that area of the country. That's fascinating to me. That is fascinating and a little bit hard to believe. I mean, we have, of course, at periods of time, you know, I've only been in this region for 20 years, but over periods of time, we have people who have brought things to the forefront um, and some advances were being made, but not necessarily in the church. Mm. Um, the church was has always been kind of center of community and lots of issues came to the church, but as far as the church being out there leading, you know, with the rally cry or whatever, it's not been something that many churches have done. I am fortunate, I, I serve a, a church in the city that has a history of um, activism when it comes to these kinds of social issues. And so um, I'm quite at home in this church um, and the people are quite at home with addressing some of these things. But, and, and I should say in the church, we've raised up, you know, lots of people uh, who have been gone on to, to be social activists. Yeah. Um, but the church itself as, as a body of believers in terms of the church universal um, has not necessarily been lifting its voice um, in the cry for freedom and, and equality and equity and those kinds of things. And so, um, I think it's easy when you're in a place, especially a rural place, yep. that you can push these things to the to the back because your community isn't a diverse community. Right, it's right? not your day-to-day -day yeah. issue. Yeah. You led yeah. your church in changing its name, which had a name after a man who issued bounties on Mi'kmaq people. Is that the way the Big C Church needs to move forward when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to social justice issues, is being aware and making change itself, not waiting for outside society to make that change? Yes. Um, one of the things that I say often is that the church is supposed to be showing the world, not the world, you know, showing the church. We're supposed to be the ones who are advocating for what is true and right and just. And, uh, and so when it comes to things like that, lots of people struggle with where is the gospel in this kind of action? Should the church be involved in these kinds of political arenas? And, uh, and I say absolutely, because that is the gospel you know, seeking equity for people is the gospel. And so we have to be the voice that speak, we, we have to speak for those who are on the margins, those who have been pushed aside, those who've been ignored, those who are being neglected. It's our responsibility and we have to show the world. So we have to practice it in our churches first, right? Yeah. Um, before we can tell anybody else to clean up their act. So yeah, absolutely. The church is, is supposed to be doing that kind of work. And I think that the Big C Church has failed, uh, you know, over history in being those voices for people or being that voice for people who are not represented well in our world. And, um, and, and yet, I think that. And yet, Dr. Brin, sorry, we're, we're running out of time and I want to squeeze in this last question. And yet, you say that there is hope that you still have hope that the conversation can move forward, that the church can move forward 
in this journey to social justice, in this journey to equality and diversity and inclusion? Why do you have this hope? Yes. I think that to live without hope is to live a futile life for number one. But I think because we have opportunities for conversations such as this one, it lets us know that people are listening, people are paying attention. They're, you know, it's, it's being stirred up. People are thinking about these things. And so you have to hope in that, that people will understand what it is that we're supposed to do to make sure that everyone has an opportunity in this life to live the best life they can. All right, Reverend Dr. Rhonda Britton, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Maggie. Have a great day. You as well. All right, the Q panel is back, and today we're discussing the global racial awakening we all witnessed two and a half years ago. Colin, Renee, and Calvin, welcome back. Julia is away today. Okay, let's dive right in. A, a lot has happened over the past two and a half years. Where do you think Canada is in the conversation around race and inclusion, Colin? Well, I think we're making progress. I think that actually the last two and a half years have been positive in many ways. I also think that there's a lot of road ahead. I think that we have raised substantial issues around systemic racism, uh, which has been very helpful. I think that we have been uh, made aware of the experience of many of our fellow Canadians uh, and how that relates to race and racism. Uh, and so what I'm hoping for is that we can continue to have these conversations. The other thing I'd say is um, we've also witnessed a pretty substantial um, uh, sort of counter movement or backlash uh, in the last year or two. Uh, and so that demonstrates to me that we have a lot of road ahead on this conversation about race and racism. But I, I'm hopeful. I think that we're probably moving in a good direction. Yeah, some people have said conversation needs to move to action. Calvin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's been great progress in terms of people, you know, accepting the idea of intersectionality. Um, I think the next step that we have to see is deference and people not just being okay with sharing their story, um, but actually listening to other people in response and then working out a roadmap. What does this actually look like going forward? There has also been a group that has risen up against this discussion, mockingly calling it the woke culture. What does that say about progress, Renee? Um, it says that, as, our, as we've just said, Calvin and Colin have said, that we have a long road uh, ahead of us, that um, perhaps all of us need to lean in and perhaps rethink language rethink relationships, and perhaps position this whole conversation, not about diversity and inclusion but and equity, but perhaps about justice, particularly in our churches where uh, I certainly sense and hear and see that, you know, the road is far longer than, than I thought um, when we started two years ago. You know, stats show that Black Christians feel more comfortable worshiping among those who look like them as opposed to multicultural churches. Uh, and that is after this global conversation on race. What does that say about how the church is doing in this area, Calvin? I don't know if it's a step backwards. It feels like it at times, but what I think it is, is naturally as humans, we gather around people um, who look like us, who sound like us, who understand what it feels like to be us. Um, and so I think there's a great healing in that. 
Uh, I'm encouraged by it. I've seen a lot more churches grow than I thought we would see because people are finding commonality and common faith. And then I believe we're just going to have to remember that we are the body. We can't be bifurcated. We are called to do this together. Um, and so we need to find a way back to, you know, these multicultural spaces where we can look at one another and accept one another uh, and then really practice Philippians 2, which is humility and, and acting out what it looks like to be in Christ and in Christ together. Colin, what are your thoughts on that? The fact that this study shows is a Pew Research Center study stating that black Christians are feeling after all that has happened, all of this global conversation, that they would prefer to worship uh, with those that look like them as opposed to being in multicultural settings. What does that say to the church? Yeah, I don't think it's surprising is one thing that I'll say. Um, it's also something that's got a pretty long history. Um, uh, people have worshiped in monocultural environments uh, over uh, many different uh, geographical locations and over a long period of history. It's true here in Canada, uh, of, for example, uh, Chinese churches or Filipino churches. Um, theologically speaking, the goal is that the church is representative of every tribe and nation on the planet, of every language group on the planet. But at the same time, I have no difficulty understanding uh, people who have been racialized, often in very, very dangerous and negative ways, feeling like they're safer in monocultural environments. So like Calvin said, I can imagine how people see that as um, as a barrier, I see it as one of the various ways we're going to sort of bumpily work out this new conversation about race and racism. And I hope that it is um, one of the steps on the trajectory towards um, a truly multicultural church. Uh, and I say that as somebody who feels like um, I need the witnesses of Christians from all of these different cultures, all of these different language groups, all of these different uh, places uh, in my life for my growth as a Christian. We need one another. But I recognize that the first thing is that people need to feel safe. They need to feel welcomed. They need to feel like they can grow in their relationship with Christ in a place that where they can be themselves. All right, Renee, we're leaving the last word to you. We have less than a minute left, so I'm giving you a task here. What needs to be the next step as we talk about inclusion in the church? I would say at the seminary and even ministerial level, when we think about mentorship and leadership, Lean in to someone who is not your ethnicity, who maybe is a first or second generation immigrant to this country. Learn from them, because if you were white Canadian, um, let's be clear, uh, white supremacy, white fragility, these things are um, very subtle, but are very much part of the ethos of our churches. I mean, I hate to say this, but it's true. And so... Um, let us lean in to those who are different, who are not like us at the seminary level, um, around our church suppers, at the ministerial levels, because I don't know that true, radical, altering conversation happens unless we are able to build and sustain those types of relationships. All right. Leaning into the conversation. Colin, Renee, Calvin, thank you again for your time. Thanks, Maggie. Good to see you, Maggie. Thank you. To be honest with you, after 20 years in journalism, I would say 2020 was the hardest year of my career. I, along with all of you, watched a man die in front of my eyes because of hate and then saw a world erupt in protest. And finally, after so many men and women who looked like me had died for one reason or the other, people were finally willing to listen. 
Listen to stories of pain and struggle, committing to make things better, committing to change. And after hundreds of years of oppression, no one is expecting that things will change overnight. We know that real progress takes time. But I too wonder how much time is too much time. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8, speak out on behalf of the voiceless and for the rights of all who are vulnerable. It doesn't say wait to speak out. It says speak out. The writer implying the action be done now. So I humbly ask, what are we waiting for? Thank you for watching. Let us know what you think of today's topic. Join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For all of us here, I'm Maggie John. See you next time. Thank you for your ongoing support of Crossroads, a supporter-funded nonprofit organization and member of the Canadian Centre for Christian Charities. Thanks to faithful people like you, we are able to continue producing context. You can write to Crossroads, PO Box 5100, Burlington, Ontario, L7R 4M2, or visit crossroads.ca to learn more about our programs. Context Beyond the Headlines invites you to an exciting new season. This year, we're expanding our reach with a brand new podcast that will explore the interaction between faith, justice, culture, ethics, and society. As we move forward with this brand new season and the launch of this brand new podcast, would you consider partnering with Context financially? It is because of the generosity of viewers like you that we're able to continue to tell the stories that matter.